Yes, the first reading is from Daniel 7, beginning at verse 9, and can be paid, found on page 890, halfway down the second line. <clears throat> As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was, was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the Old Testament context for the second reading which is in Matthew, Matthew 25, to be found on page 994. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed with my, by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. 
I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Basil. Well, in response to hearing God's word, Lord, make your word our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. For Jesus Christ, our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, I'm sure that like me, you like surprises, especially good surprises. Last year I had a birthday, and my wife took me to a restaurant And when we sat down to eat the meal, two of my sons appeared. And one of them had come from Adelaide just overnight to come and uh, share the birthday with us. And uh, the best part of it was that my sons paid for the meal. But uh, the year before, I went to Adelaide to visit the family. And when I got home, there was a a letter from the South Australian police uh, because I'd actually broken the speed limit while driving through Adelaide. So that was a nasty surprise. Life is full of surprises, good and bad. And I guess we want to try and avoid the bad surprises if we can. And that's why Jesus tells this story in Matthew 25. He gives a vision of the day of judgment, which is full of surprises, good and bad. It's actually one of uh, three warnings that Jesus gives to his disciples in Matthew 25. He talks about his return as the Son of Man and about the coming judgment. And he tells the parable of the ten virgins, which is a kind of a general warning to be ready for the coming of the bride, or the bridegroom rather. And then he tells the parable of the talents, or the bags of gold, which is a warning to disciples about uh, using uh, the opportunities and resources God has given to prepare for the coming of the Son of Man. And then finally we have this vision, the vision of the Son of Man in his glory when he's separating the sheep from the goats. It's not really a parable, although it's got parabolic elements to it. It's a vision of the end, but it's a vision that's full of surprises and warnings. And as disciples of the Lord Jesus, we need to listen to this very carefully uh, and think about what it's saying to us here this morning. So the first thing I want to draw attention to is the surprising verdict that takes place. Let me read again verses 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, one thing that's not surprising is the fact that the, that the Son of Man is going to be the judge of all the nations. Because we heard from our first reading from Daniel that that was a vision that was given to the prophet a long, long time ago. Long before Jesus came, there was a prophecy that a man-like figure would judge the world. 
God would give him the authority. God would give him the responsibility of judging the nations. And all nations would, become, would come before this man-like figure, this son of man, in order to be judged on the last day. That's not a surprise. When Jesus taught this, people would have recognized that he was referring back to that passage in Daniel. What is surprising is that he simply separates the sheep from the goats. Now, the reason why Jesus used that image was because uh, in the ancient world, the sheep and the goats would, would feed together during the daytime, and in the evening, they would be separated. The sheep don't mind being out in the cold, apparently, but the goats want to go inside. And we should not uh, draw any particular lessons from that. It's just simply that Jesus is using a common analogy, as he does in so many of his parables, uh, things that people were familiar with, to draw attention to two different classes of people. But the extraordinary thing about this day of judgment is that all he does is look at them and say, you go that way, you go that way. Now, that is entirely different from the way most people would imagine the day of judgment to take place. I was remembering that Crocodile Dundee film, the first one, uh, when the subject of God came up. The Crocodile Dundee, who didn't have any time for God in this world, said, don't worry, mate, when I get up there, I'll sort it out. You know, I'll talk to God, he's my mate, we'll get things right. So you can just imagine Crocodile Dundee up there saying, well, you remember me, Lord, and I did this, that, and the other, and uh, having a little debate with God about why he should get into heaven. More seriously, I think some people really think that either there's going to be some kind of great scale in heaven where there's good things on the one side and bad things on the other, and they just hope that the, the good things will outweigh the bad things and they'll get in because the good things outweigh the bad. Or even worse, some people think that somehow there's going to be a kind of a, a courtroom where you'll be able to plead your case and you'll be able to talk about all the good things you did against all the bad things you did. But that's not the way Jesus pictures it at all. It's not like an ordinary court scene where there's a counsel for the opposition, the, the accusation, and one for the defence and so on. Uh, there's no great arguing. The, the judge just says, you go that way, you go that way. The sheep and the goats. You see, already Jesus, the Son of Man, recognises who belongs to him. The sheep belong to him, the goats don't belong to him. The imagery of the sheep is used in the Bible many times to describe the people of God. It's a very comforting image. The Lord is my shepherd, I will not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. It's wonderful, isn't it, that sort of uh, imagery. So to be one of Jesus' sheep is, is a very encouraging thing. But how does he identify them? Is it just by name? Is it just by looking at them? How does the verdict take place? Because you see, the judgment is over. That's the amazing thing about this scene. It's not really a judgment scene. It's not really a courtroom with the, with the, with the, the councils there arguing the case. This is, it's all over. This is just a separation process. Because what Jesus is really saying is that judgment is taking place now. And what happens when we stand before the judge is simply a recognition of what is already true in our lives, whether we belong to the sheep or the goats. It's a very surprising verdict, a very surprising situation. Now let's listen to the very surprising basis on which Jesus makes the decision. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. So there are people here who are already counted as inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. Now we need to be very clear in our minds that the whole idea of inheritance in the Bible and particularly in the teaching of Jesus is a matter of grace. And so it is normally in life. Uh, sometimes an inheritance is simply passed on to children without any discussion. But sometimes people uh, give a very generous inheritance to, to friends or, or to charities or what have you, an act of sheer grace. And it's got nothing to do with the worthiness of the people so much as a relationship. And within that relationship, very graciously, an inheritance is promised and finally an inheritance is received. And that's the picture we have here. It is a picture of grace, of God in his mercy giving generously the kingdom of heaven to his own children, to the sheep in this vision. But how are these sheep identified? Well, you realize several times in the vision that they're identified as those who give things to Jesus. They give food and drink to Jesus. They go and visit Jesus when he's in prison. They, they, they look after Jesus when he's sick. Now, it was pretty obvious how people could do that within the physical lifetime of Jesus. In his ministry, that's exactly what some people did for him. Uh, women cared for him in giving him food. People put, put him up in their houses. Uh, people looked after Jesus in all sorts of physical ways. But how does this continue on? What, what does it mean for disciples once Jesus is resurrected and gone physically from the scene? In what way uh, are, is Jesus ministered to like this? And of course the answer is very clear. It is when we minister to his disciples, to his brothers and sisters. Now sometimes people have taken this vision as a kind of a general statement about humanity. Uh, the brotherhood of man, you sometimes hear people talk about that. And they just simply envisage that uh, what's going on here is a picture of people doing good in the world. And therefore, if, even if somebody has nothing to do with Jesus, if they're a good person and they feed the, the hungry and uh, give money to the poor, they'll be recognized as really being a Christian. And sometimes there's been a, theologians have taken this position and they've talked about people as being sort of secret believers, although they didn't really have any belief at all. But it's pretty clear from the teaching of Jesus that what he means here in this context is his disciples. He means other disciples. Earlier on in, in uh, Matthew's Gospel, uh, he talks about the people who um, leave their own family behind to follow him and become part of the family of Jesus. And he talks about people giving a cup of cold water to one of his own disciples, one of his own brothers and sisters and, and in that, he says, if you give them a cup of water, you're giving a cup of water to me. So it's pretty obvious earlier on in, in the gospel that Jesus is identifying uh, himself very closely with his brothers and sisters, with his disciples. And he is saying, 
that when you care for one of my disciples, you're showing your care for me, your love for me, your commitment to me. Now, this is a, this is a very uh, important message for us to take on board. You know, people often say that uh, a, a person's last words are very significant. Well, these are almost Jesus' last words. Because if you go on in the gospel, you realize that the next chapter is all about his arrest and trial, and then there's the crucifixion, and then there's a resurrection. And Jesus has some very important things to say after he's resurrected about taking the gospel to all the world and making disciples of all nations. But you see here, back here, the very last thing he says before he's arrested is, take care of one another. Take care of my disciples. Show your love for me by the way you love one another. Now, Jesus knew what was happening, and he knew that the pressure was going to come upon his disciples. He knew that they'd be persecuted. He knew that they'd be kicked out of their homes, that they'd lose family relationships, that people would lose their jobs, that they would be desperately in need of loving care from other believers. He knew that was coming. And so almost the last thing he said was, make sure you take care of one another, my disciples, because the times are going to get tough. And in those times, you will genuinely, desperately need one another. So it's very interesting when you look at Matthew's Gospel to realise you've got these two things going together. At the end of the Gospel, you've got a very strong call to make disciples, to be evangelists, to share the Gospel with people. And we must never lose sight of that. Uh, disciples are called to make disciples. But back here in the passage we're looking at, there's another priority which is that disciples should love Jesus by loving one another and by caring for one another in very practical, down-to-earth, everyday ways. And just look at the list. People are hungry, people are thirsty, they're strangers, they get invited in, they need clothes, they need looking after, they even get into prison and they need visiting in prison. And we could go on, I'm sure, that Jesus could have added to that list many things. Uh, sitting down with somebody and reading the Bible to them and praying with them, for example. Uh, my mother is very elderly now and she was a regular churchgoer and I just wish that there were other people who would come and share the Bible with her and read uh, to her and pray because in the nursing home where she is, it's not a Christian place and that just doesn't go on. And naturally it's left to the family to do these sort of things. There are many things that one can do for believers to strengthen and encourage them uh, in their everyday situation. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about a reward for being good. He's talking about evidence. Evidence that someone really loves him and really wants to please him and really wants to serve him by loving his people. And you can see from this that you can't be a Christian on your own in the end. The idea of the Lone Ranger Christian is really contrary to what the Bible teaches. Uh, being a Christian means being part of a community of believers, caring for one another. And uh, when times get tough, particularly, you can see the need for this. But Jesus is talking about it as an everyday commitment of loving him by loving his disciples and looking out in practical ways uh, for putting this into uh, effect. The third part of the uh, vision is a surprising basis for rejection. Verses 41 to 46. Then the Son of Man will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now here is a challenge to people who think that they are Christians, but don't actually demonstrate it. They think they're right with Jesus, but it never expresses itself in the kind of practical loving care and commitment that he's talking about here. Now that would be a shock, wouldn't it? To be somebody who really thought that you were a Christian and yet to stand before Jesus and to hear those words. I'm reminded of what he said back at the end of the Sermon on the Mount uh, about the last day. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So it is possible, and history shows this to be very true, it's possible for even people in very prominent positions who get up and give talks and uh, present themselves in a very public way as Christians to prove themselves in the end to be deceivers and to be deceived. And the acid test is not whether people can get up and give good talks, it's whether they care for one another, whether they care for the needy in the congregation whether they have that practical, down-to-earth love for Jesus that issues in love for his people. That's a real shock, isn't it? That's a surprise. And what he's talking about here is what we don't do. <laughs> and that's perhaps even more frightening because uh, if we are in the process of trying to add up all our good points and trying to work out how many brownie points we've got, whether we're going to earn our way into heaven, then if we're honest and look at the, our failures then we say, well, there's no hope. And of course, that's where we have to come back to grace, our reliance on God's grace and what Jesus has done to open the kingdom of heaven as a gift to us. But the point about this story is to challenge us about whether we're genuine, whether our relationship with the Lord Jesus is genuine, whether our relationship with one another is genuine. It's a frightening thing to be cast into outer darkness, to be left separated from God forever, to be cast into the lake of fire as it's portrayed here, where human beings don't really belong, they shouldn't be there, it's for the devil and all his angels. Uh, but people in the end who don't take Jesus seriously, who don't take the gospel seriously, the offer of grace and forgiveness, who don't receive the inheritance with gratitude and express that gratitude in their everyday lives, they show that they don't belong with Jesus in his eternal kingdom. So this morning, we are being challenged about genuineness uh, and hypocrisy. We're being challenged by the Lord Jesus to look for those opportunities to care for one another, to support one another as the children of God, as the brothers and sisters of Christ. Uh, let's pray that God would help us by his spirit to do that, to look for opportunities, to look for ways in which we can show that genuineness of our relationship with the Lord Jesus in the days to come. 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Eternal Judge, Ruler of all, we thank you for this warning passage with its encouragement to show forth love to you in the way in which we love one another. And we pray that this day, this week, and the years ahead, by your Holy Spirit, you would show us practical ways in which we can do that. That we would not turn aside from brothers and sisters in need, that we would see the need to show our love for you, our gratitude to you, in the way in which we respond to one another. We pray that Christians in Sydney, throughout this country, would be known for their love, their love for one another, a love that would flow through then to the world, to those in need everywhere. We pray that this would be true of us by the power of your spirit. We pray it for your great name's sake. Amen.